Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I'm in the fetal position in the bunk. And Joe's saying, look, you've got to leave, mate, because you wake up in London and your girlfriend's really going to kill you. And I'm standing on what is the door to the tour bus. We're back against it. Someone opens the door. I do like a cartwheel, smack my head on on the car deck, (laughs) concussing myself. An Arctic lorry misses my head by six inches. I burst into tears. So, so they have a whip round. They put about 80 quid in my pocket and I get back on the ferry. I want you around West Belfast at six o'clock in the morning. Not, I'm still concussed. How are you? It's not every day that we have a guest on the podcast that has played drinking games with Joe Strummer shared double brandies with Sean Ryder, hung out with Amy Winehouse, and was part of the foundation of Irish radio as we know it today. You'll often hear Stuart Clark of Hot Press on the radio, but always talking about the lives and music of other people. But in this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast, it's all about Stuart. And boy, has he got some stories to tell. I was very fortunate I got to go with the Mannix to Cuba, and Castro was there with the boys hmm. one of the manics said we're, we're terribly sorry we're a bit loud tonight and he goes nothing is as loud as the sound of war <laughs> which is a great sort what of comeback a, what a line to take away this old lady came she's about 80 she's just saying looks lovely you're here and it's great for the young people of Tremor. They've mm. got this radio station I've one tiny complaint mm. you don't play the Angelus and I said with all sincerity, I- I'm sorry, we don't have any of their records. And Amy was taking off. She was going to be a global superstar. They wanted her in Australia and America. She didn't know how to say no, and no one looked after her. And that's the last time I saw her, and then she developed a terrible uh, heroin habit. I'm not trying to blame the guy. That would be sexist in its own way. She made her choices, but she wasn't keeping the best company. I didn't realise at the time that one of the pupils was Diana Spencer and she started seeing Prince Charles. So we're like halfway through the broadcast where three policemen jump out of the bracken and arrest me. (laughs) My full chat with Stuart coming up very shortly. But first, ahead of this interview, there's lots of calls into the Mario Rosenstock hotline. Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. This is Donald J. Trump, the left-wing and failing hot press magazine, bad magazine, bad, 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 are about to do a whack job on me claiming all sorts of stuff, fake news, about my indictment with their failing loser journalist, Stuart Clark. Stuart Clark, bad journalist, bad guy, bad hombre. A whack job, folks. He's a woke whack job. Don't listen to him. Fake. Hi, Mario. Matt Cooper here. Looking forward to the Stuart Clark interview. I love how Hot Press actually ask all their guests in their feature interviews if they've smoked dope. Um, From now on, I think I shall be adopting this approach myself with all my guests, particularly Charlie Weston. He's definitely on something. Say nothing. I'll be with you in a second. Hello, Mario. Uh, Pascal Donahue here. Uh, just to say, um, I very much enjoyed my recent interview with Stuart Clark in Hot Press. And if you can tell Stuart, for the record, that I would like to retract any comments I made because uh, I have never consumed any drugs. 
Um, although I did enjoy one evening, I remember, four cans of um, Pringles, sour cream and onion in a row on a flight from Dublin to Strasbourg and felt a little woozy afterwards. But that's the extent of my um, criminality. Thank you. <laughs> Pascal, Pascal going great guns as usual. And if you want to see me on tour, um, I'm on tour all around Ireland at the moment. Um, and I'm in uh, Wexford on the 6th of April. I'm in Athlone on the 7th of April. And I'm in um, Limerick on the 8th of April. And the following week, the big ones in Dublin. 13th, 14th and 15th of April. I'm in the Olympia Theatre, 8pm every night. That's Thursday, Friday and Saturday, 13th, 14th and 15th of April. The tour is going absolutely brilliantly. I'm really enjoying this new show. I think the public are as well. Every night is packed out and rammed and I'm exhausted, which usually is a good sign. Anyway... Let's get to the main event of the day. Stuart Clark. Stuart is in the hot seat, ready to go. This conversation is packed full of great insider stories about the whole world of music, musicians, and a few laughs too. Enjoy. Stuart, as a, a you know, a, 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 you know, music journalist with Hot Press for how many years? I've been there. I'm a, a, a lifer, I suppose, mm. about 25 years at this stage. Yeah. Do you find that your does a person's um, appetite or taste in music change as they go through their years? When I was a kid, I almost tried records on in the mirror to see how they looked. You know, was the cover hip enough? And, and now I just think, I don't care. So like when I was a kid, the idea of liking country and western, I mean, was just no, no way. Yes. I was into The Clash and The Damned. Though I did sneakily like Johnny Cash. Then as I got a bit older, my, my taste got very, very sort of varied. I think Ireland as well was good like that because, you know, in, in London as a kid, you can go and see punk bands seven nights a week and not have to get outside your bubble. Across here, in the early days, bands very rarely visited. So if Jackson Brown was playing one day and, and Christy Moore was playing the next and Bob Marley, you, you go and see everything. Yes. There's also, I think, that real tradition here of having a party piece, singing a song, playing an instrument. And I wouldn't be very popular saying this in the UK, but I think Irish people are much more musically literate, possibly, than their um, close neighbours. Mm. So I, I just find here that people, you, know, you go to a festival where Christy Moore was on, along with the Manic Street Preachers. In the UK, that would seem really odd. And it seems odd to the Manic Street Preachers, yeah. but not to Christy Moore, yeah. because that's the so way like it is. So like Fela or something, or Listun Varna. Yeah, the Flower and the Fela, all of those kind of things. Rock and roll next to... To, to trad but it's also interesting to find out the mm. likes of Johnny Marr are massive Planksty fans as is Noel Gallagher that Mancunian Irish thing Planksty have so many celebrity fans and again Johnny Marr worships at the altar of Rory Gallagher mm. um, so it's kind of interesting and, and coming across here I realise just how influential Irish people have been in the UK. Mm. There's been no music scene hardly because everybody has a granny from Waterford or yes. was brought up Mancunian Irish or, or the Gallagher's Irish. yeah a- absolutely. Johnny Marr. Yeah. yeah. It was really interesting. I Morrissey. <laughs> first time. Sorry, I- no, it's actually everybody. It is. Pete Doherty. Sorry, is there any of them that are not English? I Irish. don't think so. The first time I interviewed Liam Gallagher, he said, uh, I'm looking forward to this. And I thought, did he say that to all the journalists? And what it was, he used to come across to Mayo with Noel for the school holidays. And they're really right. into music. And they'd pick up Hot Press they couldn't get it in the UK. And they'd take it back to school. The kids would go, oh, that's a magazine we haven't seen. Can we read that, please? No, it's for Irish people. Right. So and it was kind of weird. Yeah. And Nick Hornby was the same. He came yeah. into an interview saying, I'm really looking forward to this. 
I was going, are you? And he used to buy hot press for, off a vendor in, in Cricklewood. Now, he's English, but it just seemed exotic. And I thought, hot press exotic? I suppose perhaps we are in a way. <laughs> so it's kind of nice that a lot of artists actually do like the magazine. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, actually speaking Liam Gallagher. I'll never forget the time um, he met Tony Fenton. Oh, I can only imagine. And it was like um, it was like kind of one of those cosmic events which you hear about only in 95 years. You know, like Halley's Comet or something, yeah. where they predict that an asteroid is going to come within certain parameters of Earth, but not not hit it. So, like, um, I think it was like he just I could I could see Liam like taking Tony in uh, and just going, you know, <laughs> right, and then Tony taking. Thing. It's like um, one of those Ray Harryhausen old uh, dinosaur movies yeah. where like the two things come face to face. And Noel's, Liam's, Liam's line was, Tony, Tony just goes, Liam Gallagher, Tony Fenton. And, and he goes, Liam recoils slightly <laughs> and kind of goes, that's fucking one hell of a Rolls Royce you got there, mate. Liam tries... It's fucking... Like, so he's called it the Rolls Royce. That's lovely. L- Liam pretends to be pretty thick, but he's a very smart right. guy. He's very astute. And it's funny, because even at the, 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 the height of the feud, Noel was saying he's a see you next Thursday, but he's a great dad. Better dad than me. Yeah. He gets down the floor and plays horsey with the kids. He's, he's a great dad. Yeah. I think they love and hate each other yeah. in equal measure. I mean, there is really bad blood, yeah. but there's also a bit of brotherly love. It's just gone a bit wayward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned country and western there uh, a while ago. I mean, I was, I was just watching, a, I've been watching um, this PBS um, series. You may have seen it, actually, about the country music. Yeah. And and, and the influence of the Irish um, among Cajuns, uh, sorry, as well as Cajun and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But how, how instrumental the Irish experience was in the mid-1800s um, to forming what we know as country music. I'm going to name drop now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I spoke to Bruce Springsteen mm. uh, over in Paris, mm. as you do, we talked about Joe Strummer, but he also was talking about, you know, he had an album out and he said, look, you know, you guys came across and informed us and so much of what I do is yeah. based on my Irish heritage yeah. as well. So Irish music has been so hugely yeah. influential. And, you know, you look at the UK, you look at America. Um, I think the best night of my life, yes, um, excluding girlfriends, um, was going to see Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson and the Carter Cash family in the, the University no. Limerick Concert Hall. Wow. And it was the full Monty. It was all of the family. June was there. Yes. And the second he walked on, the guitar slung down. He is singularly the most charismatic man I've seen. Now, the interview got cancelled, but I was just kind of like, oh, my God. I think their careers were slightly in the toilet. Johnny had gone through his ill-advised gospel phase. Chris had probably been behaving very, very badly. So to see them in such a small venue, mm. I mean, if they all mysteriously came back to life, well, if Johnny came back to life, you know, it'd be sort of four nights in the three arena. But back then, yeah. Actually, it was really funny because talking of careers going down the toilet, at around about the same time, Meatloaf w- was coming across. And, and the press release was, you know, Meatloaf has sold 50 million records, 15 Grammys and all these awards. And it was like, starts his, you know, 1991 world tour in Dooley's Hotel Burr. I know. I remember there was a tour of Ireland. Yeah, the famous one. It's like seeing Lady Gaga and the Noggin Inn. And the famous gig somewhere more northerly where someone threw a wheelchair onto the stage. Yes, saw the story. Yeah, again, he was a wonderful pop star. A bit like Iggy Pop and Alice Cooper. He went to work. Yeah. You know, he was meatloaf. Who's the greatest pop star Ireland has ever produced? Oh, depends what your definition of, 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 of pop is. I would say solo act. I'm kind of going to go for Sinead O'Connor. I was one of the judges who awarded her the um, Lifetime, well, not the the, the Classic Album Award the other Mm. day. 
Uh, and the only argument was which of her albums. And I think, you know, not only was the music like nothing else you'd ever heard, when that first album came out, The Lion and the Cobra, you're going like, what? Mm. What is this? And the idea that an Irish person, we called it an Irish woman, because before that, really Irish women had been sort of the, the front people for mm. bands and, and had a, a, a Svengali pulling the strings. Mm. And there was like Sinead. And everything she said and did, people might have laughed at the time, but she was right. The whole Pope thing, the whole church thing, she mm. was right. And I just think if you listen to those records now, you know, things age badly sometimes. But, you know, The Lion and the Cobra yeah. could have been released today. Yeah. What she's singing about is, is still relevant. And that takes some kind of genius. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I think I, I, think I did Miriam O'Callaghan in one of my shows doing Johnny Cash. I think she was kind of like, she was talking like that, yeah, genuinely. Yeah. And yeah. then she says, I do a really good Johnny Cash. <laughs> Stuart, would you like to hear my Johnny Cash? I would have loved to have heard that. I, I can, no, I can do my Johnny Cash because I'm really good at doing impressions, yes. genuinely. So I can do Johnny Cash. I can kind of do it. I, can... I hurt myself today. That's not I, bad. I've got to find that. That sounds great. No, I just did it for you there. Oh, well, yeah, yes. <laughs> oh, sorry. I did it in one of my live shows. All right. I, so I thought you meant the real. The real. No, guy. no. I, I, that is. He's in the same vocal range that I use. Uh, or Miriam doing Johnny Cash is in the same vocal range that <laughs> I do. What, you know? No, I think it's, your impersonation is great, but I actually thought of the real Miriam Callahan suddenly stopping an interview to do some Johnny Cash. That, that would be. <laughs> no, you see, I do a thing on stage where. Miriam has interviewed so many people in her yes. life that I do this thing where I can walk on stage with a wig and a dress and I can go, I've interviewed so many people that their voices are emblazoned into me <laughs> and they actually come out of her. So I, I said she met Miriam, um, Johnny Cash once and that her voice went. It's as if she, when she touches you, she, she gets your voice. That version. So if Miriam met you, she'd be going, Pat, I've got some wonderful new music for you, Pat. Oh, what have you got for us today, Stuart? Do you ever think when you're interviewing, being interviewed by Pat Kenny, do you ever think... What the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> I actually really enjoy my Fridays with Pat, who knows a lot about music. I remember when Leonard Cohen died. This was Pat's special. But do you ever stereo. feel strange? Hang on, before you continue. Do you ever feel strange when Pat goes, Yeah, that's really funky and groovy? But you know what? It's interesting. He listens to every single album. One of the things we did the last couple of years was get him into um, gangster rap. And that, at first he was quite resistant. And then we said, well, look, the lyrics are kind of social commentary. So we printed out the lyrics of the last Kendrick Lamar album. And Pat was going to go, wow, this is really kind of, this is poetry. So since then he's turned into a bit of a, a gangster rap theme. So one of the things we did, we had Pamela Joyce on this, this show. And one of the things we did was Pamela playing Cardi B. And uh, Pat said, she said to Pat, read that. And I, I was there, wet ass pussy. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and there's nothing like hearing Pat Kenny saying wet ass pussy. I, I did giggle once when he introduced Pussy Riot. And we, we did a, a, a very serious feature on, on his programme about chemsex. And I had to go into the studio beforehand to run through a few sort of phraseologies to see if it was acceptable for after sort of, you know, uh, 11 o'clock or whatever on, on a Monday morning. And I do remember I, I said to him, you know, here's a few. And he went, anal tears, anal tears. I, I think I'm okay with anal tears. <laughs> and and um, Can I do that in his voice? <laughs> okay. Thanks, Stuart. I think I'm okay with anal tears. There, there was an official complaint to the broadcast. At least it wasn't anal tears. Was well, it? well, that's it. That, that's, a, that's a different story. Um, different band. But and, and the thing is, out of interest with that, it was a very serious piece. Um, and 
other broadcasters wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. And Pat was, no, it sounds interesting, harm reduction. His knowledge, actually, of things like harm reduction, I do a lot of stuff around drugs, and Pat is on the money. And I'm not just saying this could do stuff with him. He is always on his brief. There's never a time. He's always listened to the tunes. You don't have to prove it to me. I mean, no. honestly, I mean, I said it all firmly tongue-in-cheek. I mean, he didn't get to the top of his game for no reason at all. And he is on top of his brief. And... I mean, I know that, for example, he in the he's always been into music. He started life as a as a DJ. Yeah, he was well, a DJ in, in the late sixties and early seventies. Coming at you on, yeah. on two FM. He, he's a musician. Yeah, he plays. Yeah, um, he's, he's which is more than I do. He's encyclopedic, and, and he's very good at hearing stuff and, and pulling out sort mm. of like that sounds a bit like, and you go, "What? Yeah, you're right." Mm. You delve way back. Mm. And the other thing I, I noticed about him, I was at a Rolling Stones concert, mm. and unfortunately he was sat at the end of a row, so people get to him. There must have been 30 people came up to him for a selfie during yeah, the Stones. Yeah, yeah. And Pat was always like, yep, no problem at all. Yeah. So, you know, it, he, he's a pro. There are times, though, it feels a bit surreal being sat there with him, you know, when you think about his current affairs, background and everything. Yeah. But I've been doing that now for three or four years, and I really enjoy it. Yeah, he's a peculiar character because, in, in, and I mean that in a, in a good way, because... Of his its depth and his depth and breadth of knowledge puts him legitimately into places where it looks a bit weird. Yeah, he, he has a right to talk about music. He knows his stuff. He knows sport as well. I know he knows politics and economics. Yeah, he's like he's kind of like Matt Cooper on steroids. <laughs> yeah. it's, he's kind of like a sort of a if Matt Cooper he's like a sawn off Matt Cooper's like a sawn off Pat Kenny. Um, really so, yeah. um, no it, it, it's lovely sort of doing that and um, kind of scary sometimes he has a lot of listeners <laughs> you know it's only when you make a mistake that you realise you suddenly look at your, your Twitter feed going oh god you made a, a hames of something yeah I want to ask you about um, I didn't know about you and Radio Caroline yes so give me a potted history of your of your sort of a biographical potted history of how you got to here and where you came from when I was about 13 I just got enamoured by Radio Caroline and I discovered that people weren't just doing pirate radio on boats, they're doing it in fields and on tower blocks. So I started doing, I was 13 or 14, I fed them with a, an older crowd who led me astray and um, we used to run away from the post office and it was, it was great fun. One day though, I think it was about 1978, I was broadcasting from West Heath Woods, which is next to West Heath School, very posh girls school. Um, I didn't realise at the time that one of the pupils was Diana Spencer and she started seeing Prince Charles. So we're like halfway through the broadcast where three policemen jump out of the bracken and arrest me. <laughs> and I'm just ah, great say, story. Just pirate radio. They go, oh, yes. Now, I was only 15 or 16. Yeah. I was cast off the police station and then they realised I was just pirate broadcasting. Okay. Um, my mum still lives across the way. And funnily enough, she got a knock on the door about 10 years ago. It was Muhammad El-Fayed. Yeah. Dodie Fire's yes, yes, yes. um, dad, who bought West Heath School mm. as a two fingers to the royal family, and now has it as a uh, residential centre for people who've uh, trauma, maybe they're refugees or they've been sexually yeah. abused, and it's in Dodie and Diana's name. But yeah, he was there with his lackeys. He had a sort of an umbrella over his head, you know, hello, and I'd like to introduce myself. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah, I, I didn't realise. My brother, it turned out, knew um, Diana's uh, sister, Sarah, mm. quite well. They used to do voluntary service together. Mm. Apparently she was lovely. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I got nicked. So it wasn't much fun. And then a mate of mine had been on a radio station in Waterford called Shoreside Radio, and he said, you know, Ireland... I, I remember Shoreside. Yeah. He said, I'm from Waterford. No, he said, there's no broadcasting laws in Ireland. You know, if you go to court and the judge says, this this transmitter 
uh, cannot do anything else. It gives off light. Well, technically, according to the 1925 Post and Telegraphs Act, it, it's a light. Does it give off heat? Oh, it's a heater. <laughs> so all you had to do when they turned up to radio, say, oh, that's not a transmitter. That, that, that's a, a light. That's Flan O'Brien-esque exactly. levels of, of satire now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we came across uh, with a four-cortina full of, like, spares. We found a mobile home uh, near the Metal Men. Um, the Metal Man. The Metal, yeah. Um, we, we, we lived in the back and broadcast from the front. And uh, we, we turned up in January. It wasn't long after the, the hunger strikes. It was a fairly complex time before young English lads. And had we really have thought it through, we wouldn't have come. But people thought we were a bit odd. You know, what are you doing? Then we started the station and they adopted us. They, they loved it. Um, it took me a while to kind of tune in culturally. I'd never been to Ireland before. I remember announcing there's a, a trad band in Dungarvan for weeks. I was saying, you've got to go and see Bodron. Um, <laughs> and the first time an Englishman sees Dervler, the BHLA, I mean, you can't even make a guess. No. But the, 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 the funniest one that uh, back then you couldn't... Try get... Greg Namana. Oh, God, I can't do that yeah, still. Yeah. Um, back then it took about three years to get a telephone. Yeah. If you were lucky. I remember actually going to Fenner, you know, the, 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 the burbs in Tremor. Yeah. And I went in, I was going, where's the dial on the phone? There's no dial. <laughs> and you had to pick up the phone <laughs> and wind it up and go, hello, oh, Fenner 24. Yeah. But anyway, we eventually managed to blackmail someone to put a phone in. But mm. um, people used to come up the hill mm. to the carpet warehouse and, and the caravan. This old lady came, she's about 80, mm. and she had a really thick Tremor accent. I can't do it. I won't insult more people. But she was saying, look, it's lovely you're here. And it's great for the young people of Tremor. They've mm. got this radio station. I've one tiny complaint. Mm. So I said, what's that? She says, you don't play the Angelus. And I said with all sincerity, I- I'm sorry, we don't have any of their records. And this old lady started swearing at me and calling me a Brit, what have you. And I, one of the lads came back on New Ireland and he said, well, what's happened? So I was a bit shaken. I said, I don't. And he went, oh, Jesus. Great. Jesus. Brilliant. Just, just, can you just make your mark there on that paper? Thanks. Great. That's actually a signature to... You've now signed off your story rights to me, so you're not, oh. allowed, you're not allowed to go on any other podcasts oh, right. and tell stories, because I'm, very, very, I'm getting a very, very distinct impression that you are a story machine. Well, I mean, right. I, I basically went, just tell us a bit about your early life. Suddenly you're being arrested by <laughs> special branch men and Sarah Ferguson and, and or Sarah Spencer and Diana Spencer. It's brilliant. I love your stories. So then next what happened was, I, I just had this thing about being on a pirate radio ship. You might have yeah. seen the boat that rocked a few I did. years ago. Now, it looked right. Right, the story was ridiculous. But, but that was like Ian Curtis, Simon Curtis, or, or Curtis. Yeah, wasn't it? it was Rom Richard Curtis. But but some yeah. bits of it were right. Yeah. So th- there was a way of doing it. You, you couldn't just go on to Caroline. There was another offshore pirate station called the Voice of Peace off the coast of Israel, run by an Iranian Jew called A.B. Nathan, who'd been in prison twice. Once for having illegal conversations with Yasser Arafat, and the second time for bombing Cairo with flowers. Um, hmm. And A.B. got the money in the early 70s, the voice of peace from John Lennon. And if you listen to Give Peace a Chance by John Lennon, the rhyme is A.B. Nathan masturbation. Okay. Now, I wouldn't have been too pleased with that. A.B. loved it. Maybe it was lost in translation. Yeah. So we're broadcasting off the Tel Aviv coast. We get letters in from Jordan and from Cyprus and from Egypt. The idea was it was a, a common language English. Um, so I was on there for about four or five months. We, we, we'd get off every sort of two or three weeks. And back then there was very little trouble uh, in Israel. So I was able to go to Nazareth and the West Bank. And it was, it was fascinating. I have very complex thoughts on, on Israel that I, I won't 
won't go into now. But it was a wonderful experience. And if you weren't grievously seasick, which I was at first, but I got used to it, um, and you didn't make a fool of yourself, and you, you stayed the course, you'd go back and, and work for Radio Caroline, which made its bow in 1964. It was fitted out in um, Grenoble. It started broadcasting in East, at, at Easter. The reason being that Ronan O'Reilly, the playboy owner, well, he's a playboy in the, in the 60s, his grandfather, the O'Reilly, yep. uh, died shortly after Easter as part of the 1916 yep. Rising. So yep. this was his two fingers to the British establishment. My word. So Ronan was was a constant. I went out there one Christmas and I was I was the hippie newsreader, and I just just one tour of duty for about two and a half months, which on a, on a boat fourteen miles from South End was was kind of interesting. Um, it was just a wonderful experience. Fourteen months on the boat. Uh, I, I was on about sort of fourteen weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a, a long time. It's a thousand ton trawler. It's now um, legal. It's in the middle of the Thames. But back then, you would, you couldn't see land. Um, you could see Laser Five Five Eight, another pirate, which was fitted out in New Ross more more recently. Yeah. And the Essex Police used to come out regularly and take photographs. They have some exotic ones of me. Yeah, <laughs> we used to give them something to talk about back in the office. Yeah, yeah. so um, that 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 was great. Wonderful. Um, it was the biggest uh, mast ever erected at sea. It was a thing of beauty. I, I was a bit overawed by it because you know, as a kid, I just thought I want to be on Radio Caroline. Um, so the first kind of couple of weeks, I, I nearly died that night actually because we got smuggled out in a little lifeboat in about Force Ten, and it was like, bobbing up and down. So you can imagine about three or four hours. The first thing I learned was if you're being sick at sea, work out which way the wind's blowing. <laughs> you know, I arrived with diced carrots in my beard, my hair. Every part of me was diced carroted. But the Caroline boat was this big trawler. It didn't move. It stayed stationary. But the little tender, the little fishing boat, went 10 feet above, 10 feet below, mm. 20 feet. And I was told, jump. Mm. I was like, what? You are joking. Mm. So I jumped. Mm. And I didn't grab hold of the side of the boat. I was mm. going to the North Sea. I'd have been killed. Mm. It was like, I don't know, minus 10 degrees. And also the, the tender was smacking into the boat. This Dutch guy called Ad Roberts had very long arms, just literally sort of like leant over and caught me before I hit the, the water. Wow. I remember I had to go upstairs and they got me a bottle of whiskey and I was still on the air the next morning at six o'clock. <laughs> and really there was no room there for any kind of, you know, sort of prima donna behaviour. Yeah. You, you just got on with it. And we think we have a bad in Today FM. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's like thrown into the North Sea and saved by a Dutch guy giving a bottle of whiskey and get on at six in the and morning. Then we got smuggled like- back into France. So I, I kind of worked out how the drug trade worked. We, we hid under tarpaul into the, bo- yeah. the, the bottom of the boat and sort of, you know, wave through eventually. Um, that was an adventure, but it was very antisocial. Uh, I was a, a young buck. Yeah. I, I had an interest, a healthy interest in yeah. young ladies. And there wasn't much avenues. There, there wasn't, no, no. There wasn't. Um, Anyway, listen, you know, people call into this podcast at times, you know, so the, to, to interact with the... Oh, uh, excellent. The, the, I think Ronan Keating's on the line. Say hello to him. Oh, lovely. Hi, Ronan. How are you? Fair play, Stuart. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm over, I'm, I'm just going around Dublin at the moment and I'm listening to fascinating stuff. Um, really, I'll, you're, the stuff you don't know about music. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't meant to come out like that. But anyway, I was going to ask you, you've, you've kind of had interviews or, you know, worked with or, you know, real bad boys. You know, I mean, you've been exposed to people like Ken Doherty and stuff like that in the music business. Unbelievable, you know. Um, share a story with you, actually. I was doing a concert once. And, you know, real mad stuff now. Remember eating a Granny Smith's apple, right? And I just threw the core wherever. I didn't even, I didn't even bother. It's just the way you rock. Just threw the core. So I just want to know, 
Real stories from you about people, bad boys you've worked with. First of all, Ron, thanks. Can, can I thanks, Mario. For, for a headline in Hot Press, um, you covered father and son at a time that Cat Stevens is uh, religious. Sorry, who's this, Ronan? Yeah, boys own. Sorry, he's gone now. Oh, he's gone. Oh, do you want to get him back? I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's not time to make a change. Is that one? That one, yeah. We, we ran a story called Fatwar and Son because the royalties were going to Cat Stevens, who supported the fatwa on, you know, Salman Rushdie. Yeah, but I had 17 death threats after singing that. And I do remember um, Louis Walsh on the phone being a little irate on the Thursday morning with wow. me. But look, we're, we're, we're friends now. Actually, Louis calls me Lemmy, which he thinks is an insult, <laughs> but is actually a, a, a great badge of honour. I love Louis Walsh. Yeah. We, we used to wind each other up something rotten. Yeah. But funny enough, we, we've been feuding a bit about stupid things. And, and I sat with my girlfriend at the time, very near Tower Records, um, and having a drink. And he comes out, he comes across these bags full of records. And he says, what are you doing with this, this guy? And he sits down and we, I said, what you got in there? Anything decent for a change? And he got out these Motown box sets and Philly. Bo- There's a guy that you think... Very, very astute when it comes to music. Oh yeah, but He's I mean, if, even even if you look at the early, even if you look at you know the early selections for Boyzone, they were quite astute. Spot in, on. In, yeah, in terms of you know that soul uh, sense, you know, and uh, to do it not once but twice, and actually three times with Samantha Mumba. Yeah, takes yeah. some genius. But yeah, I remember it was during Euro nineteen ninety six interviewing Sean Ryder. And he's a bit the worse for wear. And, and what would happen is you'd be asking him a question and he'd literally fall asleep during the question. <laughs> and, and the cigarette in his hand would sort of burn down to the, the quick and then he'd sort of wake up again. But it's like a, a pause on a tape deck. He'd remember the conversation from two minutes ago before he passed out. Um, <laughs> so like a 30-minute interview took about three hours. But he turned round and he said, uh, oh, lads, I think we'd better go for a Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I was going... But Sounds like Tyson Fury. I said, but there, there, there is no Kentucky Fried Chicken around a Street. That's strange. And, and he came back crystallite. The eyes were lovely and clear. He was wonderful for about 10 or 15 minutes after that. After the chicken? After the Kentucky Fried Chicken. I later <laughs> found out that was the code, sort of, you know, let's go upstairs for, for whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, and then he sort of decided to have a few double brandies. And he got through about five. I had one. I thought I'd better show Willie. Do you want a d- double brandy, lad? Double brandy. Yeah. And he would oh, <laughs> rock back. And he, he, he left like comatose. I think Black Grape was supporting radio. Oh, no, Blur in the RDS. Mm. And he was perfect on stage. I think he had some more Kentucky Fried Chicken on yeah. route to the, to the gig. Yeah, the- uh, Tim Burgess from the Charlatans fell off his chair. And like a turtle, he was like you know, on his back with his legs kind of wiggling around, laughing for five minutes. This was in a different interview. This was a different yeah, interview. Yeah, so not in the same interview as Sean. Yeah, yeah. The Alabama Three boys were always um, interesting to me to mm, talk mm. to. Um, but yeah, I think Sean probably was those. But somehow they always did the gig. Uh, although sometimes when they did the gig, it ended in tears. I remember Primal Scream, who I interviewed beforehand, again, a little refreshed. In the red box, um, they played Jailbird, I think, three times in 30 minutes. I think they, oh, they played different songs, or some of them were playing yeah. Jailbird. Then Bobby Gillespie made some comment about the IRA, and they started fighting on stage, and that was yeah. the end of the gig. Yeah, yeah. So it's not big or clever. Like, Ian Dempsey like, always, I'm, t- I'm thinking about a, a moment where you go, fuck me, is this really happening? As in, in a good way. Yeah. And I think Ian Dempsey's one was in the... Um, the spirit, the spirit store. In the spirit, no, 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 no. In the in um, Middle Abbey Street, the oh, academy. Yeah, yeah, spirit. yeah. Which is now the academy. Yeah, yeah, it was spirit. Yeah, spirit. And um, he was assigned to go and uh, interview this person, and it was David Bowie. And at the end of the interview, anyway, because Ian's obsessed with David Bowie, 
At the end of the interview, Bowie goes anyway and gets up off his chair and leaves. But Ian notices that Bowie just puts out the end of his Marlborough <laughs> and stubs it out into the ashtray. For the next five minutes, Ian is looking into the ashtray and his next five minutes are just, will I take this as a memento? Oh, I hope he did. No, he didn't. Oh, He oh. didn't. He chickened out. I think that's the same day I met Mr. Bowie. And what was one of the nicest things, I don't just say to promise people, but three or four times I've got to shake somebody's hand. At the end of an interview, I try and be professional and just say, thank you, Mr. Bowie, you changed my life. Did you? And he fixed me with his amazing eyes. I said, oh, how was that? I said, well, it's the old story. I said, life in Seven Oaks was in black and white until 1972. You came on top of the pops, did star, man. He's heard that story. But he said, yeah, yeah, that was our moment, wasn't it? And, and nobody can take that away from us. That was what? That was our moment, wasn't it? Oh. And uh, what was amazing was know, he... Sorry, just, just before you continue that, do you know what strikes me about Bowie there? Uh, and and it's, it's something you've kind of reflected and it's something I've talked to Ian about a few times because uh, I'm... I, I'm not a big Bowie uh, um, encyclopedia or anything, mm. but I've known two. Well, maybe three, but I've known like um, Paul McLoone and Ian Dempsey. And what comes across, of course, is the, de- the demystification of it all. He turns out that in all the sort of the, the, the empirical stuff you read and hear about Bowie, to be the most normal guy in the room. What was amazing... In, in a way. The, the, when he went to New York, he went on the subway. He was hiding in plain sight. People go, that, that can't be David Bowie. <laughs> okay, but, I, good. but I know people who've been in his orbit and they say, we knew David Bowie really well, but we, we never knew David Jones. They Even as band members, they think they couldn't quite get behind the construct. Apparently, he's fantastic with kids. You know, he'd, he'd read to people's kids and he'd like A.A. Milne and stuff like that. Everything, like there was a, a 16-year-old girl working in, in, in Spirit. It was actually the HQ Hall of Fame back then. Mm. And she sort of walked in with a sort of tray and the tea was kind of like, you know, um, her hands were shaking. And he said, oh, hi, do you have time for a chat? And she was like, Ugh. And he said, I'm just wondering, you know, are there any good bands? And so he would like give him a list of Irish DJs and bands and apparently went in the next day to the Virgin Megastore with a list and bought half a dozen albums on her recommendation. He was always interested and interesting. And when I spoke to him, it, it was a conversation. It wasn't me. Just, he was asking me stuff about, you know, you're an Englishman in Ireland. What do you think? And it was a lovely conversation. I got a, a real sense of warmth off of him. And they say, don't meet your heroes. That's rubbish. Yeah. Let me... Oh, my God. Is he another hero of yours? Another hero. Yeah. I went to interview... Like, I know this. nothing about Lemmy. If, if I'm, I, It's Motorhead, right? They had the one song, but it was a great song. Uh, it's I, Mr. I, Sandman. <laughs> they, 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 well, sorry. Enter Sandman, Amy Tears. That, that was Metallica. Who wouldn't oh, be... Oh, sorry. Metallica wouldn't... See, I know fuck all. See, what's Metallica what's wouldn't their, exist. song? Ace of Spades. Oh, sorry. But you, you know that the Lemmy's got the, the warts. Now, when you're interviewing him, they're so vivid. No, he's dead now. Warts? Warts on his face. No. Um, so you try not to, to look at them. But then he had the tightest pair of white flared trousers. <laughs> but there was a semicircular stain around the crotch. So you're trying not to look at the warts, not to look at the crotch. So you're looking over his shoulder. But he was so wonderfully cantankerous and warm, a complicated man. It was funny because he was saying to me, you know, Lemmy, he said, I'm a bit of a wine buff. So I was going, oh, this is unusual. So what's your favourite wine? I said, you know, it's a lovely wine. Matthews Rosé. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, it's not, it's not very, very lemmy. Yeah. But there was a guy who'd, you know, uh, been a roadie for Jimi Hendrix yeah. in the 60s. Um, he was a survivor. One of the hardest things to do in this business, whether you're a comedian, whether or not you're a DJ or a musician, longevity. Anyone who can last 50 or 60 years in a difficult business, that, that is really something to me. Yes. It is. It is. 
You're doing it. Well, I, I, I'm very fortunate because there's always a new crop of bands. And every now and again, I think, oh, is there anything decent coming along? And I was very lucky a few years ago at Electric Picnic to interview Billie Eilish. Smart lady. Really funny. A big fan. She was nervous because Glenn Hansard was coming down. Uh, her favourite film was Once. She's saying, do you, do you know Glenn? Is he nice? He's a lovely man. Oh, my God, I'm so nervous. And that was kind of sweet. The biggest star in the world was nervous about meeting yeah. Glenn Hansard. They'd yeah. gone like a house on fire. Yeah. But I just thought, you know what? The future's safe. Yeah. And everything's changed in the music industry, but it stayed the same. Yes. In the, you know, Spotify and all this kind of stuff. But the relationship between Billie Eilish and her audience was no different to The Clash and their audience. Yes. It was still about connecting and feeling something. Yeah. And you, again, you can't manufacture that. I remember talking to Martin Mills, who's the guy that signed um, uh, Adele to her contract. And I said, Martin, did you know she was going to sell? He said, oh, I, I knew she'd sell 30,000. Didn't know 30 million. Mm. Because you can't invent the relationship between an artist and the audience. You can mm. help it along. Mm. But people either buy into it or they don't. And that's, mm. I think, a, a real truism. Well, here's an interesting question for you then. Um, and this is something I've thought about a bit, but kind of got nowhere. And I need to read more books on it. And um, I need to investigate my own thought, my own theory on it. And I'll, I'll, I'll premise the question by saying this. Okay, it could apply to music or it could apply to anything. But yeah. today we're going to apply it to music. Yeah. How does stuff get chosen? And who chooses? Now, let me explain. So, if you take it to sport, right? Let's say tennis. Mm. It's pretty sure to suggest that Roger Federer... Uh, Nadal and Djokovic are the three or three of mm. the best tennis players on the planet at their at their generation. Mm. It, there's no question about that. It's very unlikely that there's a guy in Ecuador going, I could beat Federer. It's not going to happen. Mm. Right? They are the best. All right? <clears throat> now, there are other areas in life, though, where people who are the best at what they're doing aren't necessarily seen as the best. They're actually, they're nobodies. Right? Um, even as far down as soccer, for example, football. I remember, I think it was Paul McGrath saying, who, who was the best player you ever played with? Brian Robson said, no, I was a fellow in Dorky. Mm. And uh, what was his name? Or whatever he said his name. <laughs> Why didn't he make it? I and said the reason, he didn't want to make it. He didn't want to go to England. Right? I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. In an alternate universe, there are all these albums we've never heard. Great novels that unfortunately got stuck under people's beds or, or they died and they, they weren't suddenly discovered. And the margins. I mean, I think about someone like Nick Drake, who's now so revered and name-checked by every single singer-songwriter. Back in the day before he died, he sold 7,000 records. He has no idea, like Van Gogh, that, you know, Damien Rice exists because of him. Fontaine's DC worship Nick Drake. Um, and it's all about timing. It, it used to be, I suppose, back in the day, uh, it was Mr. EMI and Mr. Warner and it was always misters back then, would pretty much determine. And, and it was a bit of a cartel. You know, in the UK, it was Radio 1. It was the major record companies. Now stuff is happening without anybody's permission. Now, they still need to interact with the industry. They still need MCD to, to run gigs. They still need to, at some point, get distribution to get into the Chilean market. But you get people who are, you know, getting 20. There's a, a guy in Drogheda called Officer. Uh, there's a, a drill scene in Drogheda. The, these, it's like the, the County Louth Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. And I'm not taking the mickey there. No. They're these eight or nine really creative guys. On Spotify, 20, 30 million plays. Never been on the radio in this country, probably. And it's happening without anybody's permission. You can get out there. You can build a following. Now, Spotify is problematic. They don't pay enough. That is problematic. But it's a, a, a shop window. There's um, a great uh, artist in Wicklow, Smooth Boy Ezra. Um, you know, again, bedroom 
during lockdown, yeah. people connecting with the music. And that was happened to Billie, Billie Eilish. Originally, it was on SoundCloud. It happened to, oh. you know, so a lot of artists are, are starting off on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and then the mainstream industry is interacting with them. But obviously, if you've got your sound nailed down, you've got your hit records, you've got your image sorted, these artists have much more power when they sign their deals because they're fully formed. And, and the days of, of, of record companies sort of signing a band and development deals for, for three years, investing loads of money are gone. They want bands that are fully formed with a fan base ready to go. I, I can remember all sorts of weird things like um, there's a band from Dublin who are very, very good called Junkster mm. who got signed because they sounded a bit like garbage. Mm. I remember meeting an A&R man once who was across here from, from Sony Records and I said, you know, why are you over here? So oh, I've been sent to find an Irish band with a bit of a funny name because uh, the Frank and Waters and the Souls of Ping were doing really, really well. And a few months later, my understanding was that they, they signed the Emperor of Ice Cream from Kilkenny. <laughs> Who were a great band, but, you know, they were signing... I think Phil Cawley read that on the radio once. Yeah. yeah. You know, so record companies were, were the architects of their own sort of downfall for a while, you know, wasting loads of money. Now it's a much leaner, meaner industry. And, you know, if, if somebody signs a band, they've got to have a pretty realistic expectation they're going to do something. Mm. But you don't need to be signed, really. Up, up to a certain point, you can do so much for yourself these days, and that's very exciting. You know, we receive stuff that I've never heard of somebody. And you're going like, this is just incredible. Really? How have you been doing this? They can do it in their bedroom. Yes. Because before you had to save up a grand to go into a yes. studio. And it could have been your first time in, you'd blow that grand in a day. Yes. Whereas now people make their mistakes in their bedrooms. They can do recordings. Technology is fantastic like that. You could argue that you need the gatekeepers. You know, you, you, you need the curators. And that's why radio still exists rather than people listening to Spotify. There's too much stuff out there. Creatively, we're at, I think, a high point. Trying to monetize that. Uh, I won't name the band, but there's an Irish band who are having top 20 hits in the UK. They were playing festivals in Japan. They were very successful, you know. And one of the guys told me before they broke up, they're earning 15 grand a year living with mum. And this was a band that you would think, Jesus, they're, they're millionaires. Tom Dunn came on this podcast and he told a lovely story about a kind of um, a Carlsberg sort of moment where um, he went over to watch the uh, Paul, Paul McCartney in, in the cavern. And uh, like, he, he, as he told the story, it was just ridiculous in terms of, you know, ticking those 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 boxes of just, you know, amazingness. I'm just wondering, do you have something that you could, from 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 a Stuart Clark perspective? Well, I, I, I did meet Macca once. We all went across to see him in, in, in Manchester, about six of us. Ryan Tubridy, for once, was lost for words. But um, I didn't think I was going to be that affectionate. I mean, I like the Beatles, but when I was in the room, I was going like, it's a Beatle. It's a Beatle. Oh, my God, it's a Beatle. I mean... The, the best interview I ever did was, was Joe Strummer because The Clash were my band. Mm. Like, Bowie I loved, but I was 13 when, when punk broke. And The Clash, I saw them live very early on. And uh, so I, I, I met Joe. He was playing a gig quite soon before he died in Belfast. Uh, so I was meant to interview him after the gig, but he had a whole load of courtiers there. Tim from Ash was there. David Holmes was there, the producer. So in the end, you know, the night was galloping away and he had to head down to Tillan to catch the ferry. So the idea was hatched. I was with the photographer. I'd go down in the tour van with the photographer behind me and I'd chat to Joe and I'd get off and I'd come back. It'd be fantastic. So Joe had some extremely strong spirits he brought back from South America. And it was a, a game of, you know, let's get the, the, the DJ trolleyed. 
So I did the interview and he's playing me all these, he's, as a ghetto blaster and he'll give me like two minutes of Colombian ranchero music and a bit of Aborigine stuff. And he was like, oh, he was absolutely hyper. He wanted me to hear all this music. He had a show on the BBC World Service. So I said, well, Joe, I, I, I better be heading home. The girlfriends expect me back in Dublin. And so I, I got off the tour bus and I was walking along. Some guy went, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to the car. Well, unless you can swim, you can't because we're 12 miles off of Larn. <laughs> so, so I'm a bit kind of like, oh, what am I going to do? I didn't have any money with me. I had my mobile phone. I had to phone the girlfriend. I said, where are you? I said, I, I'm on a ferry to Australia. Don't you lie to me. What are you up to? You're, you're with somebody and this is terrible. The next day, hello, hello, Aideen. It's Joe Strummer here. We've got your boyfriend. We'll, we'll send him back in, in, in one piece. So I'm a bit like, oh, what am I going to do? So they take me upstairs and, and Joe goes to this shop and he finds 20 great Scottish anthems. Now, there's no cassette machine. He left that down the bus. So he said, what we'll do? He said, I'll, I'll call out a title. And he said, if you sing it well, you improvise. He said, you don't have to have a drink. But if you make a Haynes of it, you have to have like a double whiskey. So, of course, I got Bonnie Wee Girl of Kilmarnock. And, 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 and he's, oh, it's awful, Stuart. So um, we, we get to Stranra, uh, they take me back to the, the, the tour bus. I'm in the fetal position in the bunk. And Joe's saying, look, you, you've, you've got to leave, mate, because you wake up in London and your girlfriend's really going to kill you. So I'm like, oh, dear. And so I'm standing up just about, and I'm standing on what is the door to the tour bus. We're back against it. Someone opens the door. I do like a cartwheel, smack my head on, on the car deck, concussing myself. An Arctic lorry misses my head by six inches. I burst into tears. <laughs> so the lads have to get to London for a, a session. So they have a whip round. They put about 80 quid in my pocket and I get back on the ferry. I'm wandering around West, I'm wandering around West Belfast at six o'clock in the morning. Not, I'd still... Uh, concussed and um, about six months later uh, a colleague of mine goes to interview Joe in London the Groucho I was meant to go but I couldn't because I was embarrassed and, and he oh, I thought it was going to be Stuart and he did this impersonation <laughs> so my hero thought I was a twat but he, but he you know, we got on well um, oh god and um, I said to him you know are you proud Joe yeah you and me can be proud like old gnarly mountain lions. We changed the world, Stuart. Yeah, we changed the world. He was a lovely, lovely man. You talk about um, moments where you, you look back and go, really? I was very fortunate I got to go with the Mannix to Cuba when they were the first rock bands playing Havana. And Castro was there with the boys. Mm. And they doodled in, looking like a, a cross between ZZ Top and The Clash. Mm. El Comodante. And again, talk about... Now, I have real problems with Castro. I think mm. we all do. But what a charismatic guy. And he was talking to them. I, I was in the background where they were sort of talking. It was through a translator. Now, Castro speaks perfect good English, but won't do or didn't do out of a protest about Western colonialism. Mm. And um, one of the Manics said, we're, we're terribly sorry. We're a bit loud tonight. And he goes, nothing is as loud as the sound of war. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great sort what of comeback. A, what a line to take away. But I must admit, I, I, you know, you, like yourself, Mary, I'm sure you go on big stages and you don't really think about it. But there's a point you go, I'm kind of like, wow, I'm actually here. That is Castro, one of the most influential figures. I've been very lucky that the job has allowed me to do that. I'm also very aware that it's the Manic Street Preachers interview by Stuart Clark. I'm not a rock star. I, I still have them on a, a different level. I like to think we work in tandem, but I'm not a rock star. And I don't want to live... I've seen some of my colleagues who kind of vicariously... Yes. I, I, I just feel we get on, you're into some sort of a pact, but... The, 
to me, they're still stars. Billie Eilish, 18. She was still the star. I was just there to facilitate Billie Eilish, mm. not the other way around. I like Dave Fanning's stories about Billie Eilish, actually. She adores him. Yeah. There's a real connection. Mm. And again, mm. Dave is a real honest bidder. Um, and, and she's got good people around her. That's what really struck me, because I'd been in Amy Winehouse's orbit, and it was a bit oh, yeah. of a story here. Go on. Um, she was across. Now, I had heard Frank, one of her first yes. singles, and thought, that woman, that voice, that's a once-in-a-generation voice. So she came over. Um, the first, the second album had just been released, and she was going on to uh, Ryan Tuberley's Saturday show um, to do rehab. And we met at four o'clock in the lounge in the Barclay Court. And there's all these, you know, sort of matrons, you know, blue rinse matrons having their afternoon tea. Um, Amy was just like a force of nature. It was like throwing a hand grenade into a room. I mean, the beehive was fantastic. She was a little lady. We're chatting away and she was knocking back the, the, the double vodka. Because I had one, she had about five or six. And she did the worst Bono impersonation ever because she was having a right go at him. I thought it was quite ballsy to an Irish magazine. She said, oh, yeah, that thing where Bono goes, when I clap my hands, an African dies. <laughs> Stop clapping. <laughs> and she does this and ah, cackles and the whole place is going, who's she? Um, so she goes on to, to, anyway, she says to me, like, at the end of the interview, oh, you're a real person, I like you. Oh, I, I guess her tour manager, take, take his number down. Do you want to come and hang out with me, sweetheart, in London? So I'm going, this is a bit odd. You know, I was in my 40s and she was a younger woman. I knew after a while what it was. She she was lost, and maybe we got on quite well. And and obviously, with her father, her whole life was about pleasing her father. So I think maybe I was just somebody who chatted to her. But she was asking me about my mum in Sevenoaks and school, and I said, Amy, I'm meant to be interviewing you. So anyway, uh, she went on to Ryan that night. She'd obviously hit the green room beforehand and continued drinking. And said, oh, God, it was awful, and I felt really embarrassed for her. So I never got to go to London to hang out. And I thought, oh, gosh, she says that to all the, the journalists. But in February, she came back to do the Milk Awards. Uh, it was on a Friday. And I got a phone call from the tour manager the day before saying, you know, um, Amy says, will you come and hang out with her? If you, if you want to do an interview, great. But she'd just love to connect. So um, she, was, she wasn't a mum, but she was like a Jewish mother. And the band were telling me that, you know, when one of them was ill, she'd be around with chicken soup. And they were doing a photo session one day. And one of the guys had some crumbs from his lunch on his sort of chin. She got the hanky out and started, you mm. know. Um, this little girl came across uh, in her confirmation gear saying, are you Miss Winehouse? And the mother was like, oh, I'm sorry, Miss Winehouse. No, you're a sweetheart, dear. You say, oh, you're a princess. Aren't you beautiful? And hugged her and everything. And she said to me, what, what did you think of me on, on, on um, Ryan Tabardy? I said, ah, she said, shit, wasn't I? I said, yes, you were. She said, oh, I had a long, hard look at myself over Christmas. I don't want to be, I don't mean this in a nasty way, no, she said, I don't want to be another Shane McGowan. I don't want to be a performing seal. I don't want to be this person that goes on television and like falls over and people laugh. She said, yeah. I'm going to like make four or five great records and no disrespect to stay at home mums. I, I don't want to have kids so I can stay at home. So I'm going to get my career going first. And she had it all worked out with a, a really lovely afternoon. But I could tell she's a bit, anxious and she went off to do something else the tour manager was a grizzled veteran who'd been out on the road with metallica who were hugely dysfunctional for a while and he was saying they've got to get her off the road with metallica if one of the guys was having a bad time he'd stay in bed and the other three would do the press amy was taking off she was becoming a global superstar they wanted her in australia and america she didn't know how to say no because she wanted to, to, to please all these older men who were her her dad really and no one looked after her and that's the last time I saw her. And then she developed a terrible uh, heroin habit. I'm not trying to blame the guy 
That'd be sexist in its own way. She made her choices, but she wasn't keeping the best company. And I'd see her going on stage in Serbia, unable to walk. And I thought, how can you do that? And it was a classic case of certain elements of the industry treating somebody like a cash cow and having no concern for their well-being whatsoever. Now, she made her choices. She could be dead anyhow. But if someone had said, you take a couple of years off, we'll look after you. It's a dark, nasty story. And that's the industry at its very worst. You see kind of um, how, th- how things have changed a little, I think. You know, I think there's a little bit more. Me see, Too has definitely yeah. made see, the idea, better. for example, of even Ed Sheeran going away for a couple of years. Yeah. And I have heard of artists who said, look, we're struggling and the record company... I mean, long term, they, they killed the, the golden goose. But just out of you know basic human decency. I, I do talk a lot about Amy because... I don't like the idea of her being reduced to a cartoon. And conversely, someone like Pete Doherty was that cartoon. But thank God he's got himself together. He's clean. He's married. He's a kid on the way. He's living with this beautiful girl in Brittany. He's away from temptation. Just made the best album of his life. Mm. And it's lovely to see those guys that could have been the next member of the 27 Club get through it and actually keep on making great art. Um, Another thing which was incredibly sad... Um, and it was an interesting arc to see with Dolores O'Rean. I happened to be in Limerick when the Cranberries started, the Cranberry Saurus, fronted at the time by a very hairy man called Niall. And they were playing, you know, tiny pubs. They were awful. Well, they weren't awful. They had some, they were like the Smiths, the Cure, they had some good songs, but they, they weren't going to be world beasters. Then Niall decided to go back to the other band he was in. He was the drummer, you see, and he wanted to be a lead singer. So he went and started his other band to piss his other group off. But he went back. And my girlfriend at the time was at Laurel Hill in Limerick and said, oh, you know, those, those guys, you know, a girl in my year is going to try out for them called Dolores. And I said, well, is she any good? She's like, I don't know about rock and roll, but she sings a great Ave Maria in the choir. And over the next 15 years, I saw this very shy girl. Well, she was shy and she wasn't. She had five or six older brothers. And she was very, very funny, Dolores, and wickedly funny. And she'd, she'd put you in your place. She was a funny mixture of shy and, and self-assured. But certainly when she started off, you did not see a, a rock star. But there's something about her voice. And then over the 15 years, I knew her to see them go from that to that. At one stage, she was as big as Madonna. And our lockdown project at Hot Press, we were there on day one going, what are we going to do? There's no gigs, and that's where the money is. What's going to happen? So we said, well, can we write a book? I said, well, what about a book about the Cranberries? So we collaborated with, with the family. And we got on to all these people who were friends with her, and one of them being Simon Le Bon. And there's an interview in, in the book. It's called Why Can't We? And he tells this story of 1995. They're at the uh, charity gig that Pavarotti put on for the children of Bosnia. And, of course, Princess Diana is there with her entourage. And afterwards in the sort of the, the, the green room, no one's going near Diana because they're absolutely sort of starstruck. Who walks across? How are you? Dolores Rian. And um, <laughs> basically says to her, do you fancy going to the Jacks for cigarettes? <laughs> and Simon seems there going, oh my God. And yeah. Perry Tyler was like, I would love to, but I'd have to bring all these guys with me. Yeah. But, you know, no one would, would approach her, but Dolores, boom, yeah. in like Flynn. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is a beautiful book. Um, Why Can't We? Uh, the story of the Cranberries and the band's iconic frontwoman, Dolores O'Riordan. Uh, curated by Stuart Clark as told through the pages of Hot Press and it's absolutely beautiful illustrations now. It was wonderful because we got Michael Stipe and, and, and it took about 30 seconds. I, I emailed his manager and boom, it came back. I thought it'd bounce back because, yeah. uh, and the manager was like, he'll do it. 
And, and the way Michael spoke of Dolores, he just loved her. He loved the fact that he'd never met anybody like her before mm. or since. But in quite a, you know, LA can be quite plastic and Dolores, unvarnished, mm. turns up. But there was a kind of a classic arc. At first, she was the kid in the sweet shop. It was amazing. She was going around touring with these guys and it was fantastic and she's meeting famous people. Then I was kind of like, oh yeah, we've got another year on the road. And then it was like, I just want to be at home with my, my parents. Now, she was well looked after, in fairness, unlike Amy Winehouse. So a lot of people around her who, who looked after her. Mm. Um, and what was very tragic about her death was she'd really found happiness again. Mm. She was living in New York, like Bowie, and could walk to the 7-Eleven. Then my girl looks like Dolores Reardon. Mm. And she had a wonderful, wonderful new partner. She was making music again with the Cranberries and with mm. the side project. She was in, I spoke to her, she was in such a good place. And then yeah. unfortunately, um, but it's interesting, Dolores will be somebody that in 20 or 30 years' time, there'll be somebody saying, I've started singing because of Dolores Reardon. Yeah. Something timeless. That first album, really complex emotions, so simply conveyed. I listen to that first album now, and I feel like I'm 15 again, snogging Ruth Marshall at the Seven Nights Rugby Club disco. It's first kiss, first heartbreak. Mm, yes. It's a perfect record. Yeah. I'm delighted that the whole rugby thing has um, kind of, you know, taken her on board as well with that song, you know. And, and you know what? Her mum was at one of those monster. multiple, multiple All-Irelands. She gets, her mum is a force of nature, wonderful woman, gets so much solace at a young kid singing because of Dolores and things like the Limerick GAA adopting that Derry Girls it was interesting actually because we were a bit sniffy down here about zombie with the guns and the tanks there was no tanks but I was up in Derry uh, to meet Lisa McGee the creator mm. of, of, of Derry Girls and she was saying like we were ignored we felt like we were like an island in the middle of, of the Atlantic no one ever referred to us back in the day in the 80s or the 90s we felt abandoned then suddenly this band this like punky singer is singing about us mm. And she said, we all wanted to be Dolores and all the boys wanted to go out with her. Mm. And in Derry, she is an absolute hero. And that's why the Cranberry soundtrack, Derry yeah. Girls, pretty much. Yeah. And again, I, I know that um, Dolores' mum just gets so much comfort from that. Yeah, Stuart, um, it's been brilliant talking to you. You are a wonderful storyteller. Thank you. And uh, I don't think we're exposed enough to your uh, storytelling abilities because you're forced into just going, <laughs> the release is this week up. We have no more time. <laughs> so uh, Always on the clock. No, it's been a pleasure. Um, yeah. I, I've been very fortunate. And I have to say, it, it's the bands that have done that. You know, there's always an incredible crop. During lockdown, Irish musicians could have gone into the fetal position in the corner of the room and said, like, wake us up and it's all over. But they didn't, despite... The lockdown, the likes of C-Mat, Denise Chida, they made it work for them. My, my aberration for Irish artists and artists in general was high. Now it's gone through the roof. What, what happened during lockdown was phenomenal uh, and more powerful. Brilliant. Stuart, thanks so much for doing the Mario Rosenstock podcast and I will see you again. Cheers. My thanks to Stuart Clark of Hot Press and my thanks to you for listening. Remember, I'm on tour at the moment. You can find my dates on Ticketmaster all over the country and going to Belfast and Derry as well in June for the first time ever. Um, you can get in touch with me personally, Rosenstock at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter, at GiftGrubMario, um, or on Facebook, all the usual outlets. At same time, same place next week. See you back here, folks.